I'm reading in Matthew this morning, chapter 21, verses 1 through 10. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did, just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? The whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? Who is this Jesus, this Messiah? That's really the question each one of us needs to ask ourselves. This Jesus, who is he? Who is he really? Do we really know him? Do we know who he really came to be? What an amazing scene this must have been that was just read to you of everybody is gathered for the great feast of the Passover. They were to come to Jerusalem three times a year and the biggest and greatest feast was the Passover feast. So all of Israel would gather together. The crowds are everywhere. And as Jesus comes from Bethany, he comes into the entrance of the city and the crowd is shouting, Hosanna, waving palm branches like the children and shouting Hosanna. It was a wonderful, powerful, powerful scene. And a crowd gathers and says, what, what's going on? What's going on? What's happening? What's the buzz? Who is this? Who is this? At least some in the crowd We're pretty sure they knew who he was, that he was a prophet or maybe even the Messiah. And if so, he's the one who will come and save us from the Romans. He'll throw out those pagans. He'll be the true king and he'll bring back the glory days of Israel. He's a powerful king who will come and defeat all our enemies. And they were excited. And they were wrong. (laughs) And when he didn't do that, when he didn't march into town and create an army and begin to fight the Romans right away, they turned their backs on him and the same crowd in just a few days were shouting, crucify him. Get rid of the bum. He's not the Messiah we wanted. He didn't do what they 
demanded. He disappointed them. He didn't do what they expected. Now, it's easy for us to point fingers at them, (laughs) but we're a lot like the crowd, aren't we? (laughs) We want a Messiah, a Savior, who will come with power, bring back the glory days of Christianity in America, (laughs) get rid of the pagan political leaders, throw out the bums, bring us comfort and ease and inner peace and make our lives better. And we get excited. (laughs) And we're wrong. So we get angry and we withdraw from God and we may go through the motions of following Him and trusting Him, but we withdraw from prayer because prayer doesn't seem to get answered the way we want. We get disappointed. An article I read just this week said Christianity Today was entitled Jesus disappoints everyone. (laughs) So join the crowd. We all get disappointed because Jesus doesn't do what we want. He doesn't come as that kind of Messiah. So is the problem with Jesus? Or is the problem with our view of Jesus? Are we misunderstanding who he is and why he came. Well, Matthew and John certainly understand our wrong view of Jesus, and they're trying to correct it. When Jesus came, he, it says he came and he rode on a donkey, even the colt of a donkey, to fulfill the scripture of Zechariah chapter 9. And both Matthew and John quoted in this triumphal entry passage to help us understand that that's the kind of Messiah, what Zechariah 9 talks about, that's who he came to be. And if you'll read Zechariah, I think Matthew and John are thinking, (laughs) you'll understand what kind of Messiah he came to be. So this morning, as we look together at this prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, together, which was written some 500 years before Jesus even showed up. We'll see who Jesus really came to be, this Messiah we are following. So pray with me, would you? Lord, if we're honest, we admit every one of us gets disappointed with you sometimes because you're not what we expect. You are unpredictable. You defy our expectations. You do something different than we want so often. So as we look at this prophecy together, Lord, may our eyes be open to what you really came to be as our Messiah. So our view of you might be changed and be more in line with who you really are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Who is this? Who is this Messiah? I think Zechariah tells us. He gives us four qualities of this coming Messiah and four accomplishments of this coming Messiah. So let's look at what these qualities are first. Verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Celebrate! The king that's coming is exactly the one that you should rejoice in. 
He's the right one. So he begins with that. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. And then he says, Behold, your king is coming to you. What are his qualities? First of all, he is a king. This Messiah who is coming is a king, one who reigns, one who has authority over all others in his kingdom. He may be under God's authority, but it's authority that's given to him who exercises authority on God's behalf. And if he is king, what that means is he demands our allegiance. We are his subjects. We don't dictate to him. That's not our job. (laughs) He dictates to us. And we obey. We follow him as king. We are not independent. We're not our own. We have a responsibility to seek out his will and to follow it, to do what he says. Francis Schaeffer, when he was dying of cancer, he was a great American theologian. He was dying of cancer and he was wrestling with the fact he was dying and someone asked him, How do you deal with the fact that people all over the world are praying for you to be healed and you're dying? Francis Schaeffer's response was this. It's the hardest thing I've ever faced in my life. But he is the commander-in-chief and it's unbecoming of me to demand anything of him. You see, if he is king, then it's unbecoming of us to demand anything of him. (laughs) But our job is to follow him. And if he's king, he's a universal king. Even unbelievers will eventually submit to him. Down in verse 10, it says this, he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is a king, not just over a small kingdom, but he reigns over the entire earth. Now, not everybody in the earth submits to him yet, but they will. Philippians 2 tells us that the one day every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. People will all bow to him either willingly by choice ahead of time or unwillingly when they finally face him at the judgment. He is a universal king. So this Jesus is the one who calls every one of us to come to him as he came to the Father. Not my will, but yours be done. I submit to you, my king, my liege, my lord. So, so far, so good, right? I mean, we want a king who's powerful. We want a king who can reign over the earth and handle everything. So the first quality he gives us, Zechariah gives us, is that this Messiah is king. He has a kingdom. He reigns. Wonderful. We want to follow a Messiah who has that kind of authority. What else does he say? Secondly, he says, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, is my translation. New American Standard, yours may say something else. Uh, But the word there literally is righteous. The Hebrew word tzaddik, which means upright, in line with God's character, and in line with his law, lining up with the Torah. If someone is righteous, then they're right with God and they're right with others. 
And because he's righteous, he always does what is right. His character is upright. He always acts rightly. You see, this is really important for us, right? If we're going to follow this king, we need to know he will do what is right. There's lots of leaders today who have plenty of power, but can we trust them to always do what's right? King Assad in Syria has plenty of power, killing his own people. (laughs) He's not righteous. President Obama or whoever we might elect, Mitt Romney, Rick Santorum, whoever it might be, they will have power. But will they be righteous? Will they always do what's right? No, of course not. There's only one who we can trust to always do what is right. And that is our Messiah. He is utterly trustworthy. And this is important to know if we're going to follow him. He always does, we're told, what is best. Romans 8, 28 and 29. We love that verse, right? For God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, these he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. And we like the verse because it says he always works things together for good, and we want good, except we too often define the good the way we want it. We want things to go well. We want to be happy. We want to be comfortable. We want our enemies dealt with. So we get into trouble. Because what he does, what is good, it's what's good in his thinking, not in ours. And as he says in verse 29, the good that he sees and what he works everything towards is that we might become more like his son, Jesus Christ. That's what he does. It's like the oft-quoted passage in Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis's Narnia Tales, where Mr. Beaver and Lucy are talking, and Mr. Beaver's describing the Christ figure, Jesus figure, Aslan, as a lion. And Lucy says, oh no, is he safe? Mr. Beaver says, oh, of course he's not safe. He's a lion. (laughs) But he's good. You see, we want a Messiah who's safe, (laughs) who will coddle us, give us security, remove all the dangers from our lives, take away our enemies, give us heaven on earth, so to speak. Yet in his wisdom, he doesn't do that. He's not a tame lion. He, in fact, leaves us in the battle. And we are in the battle to be attacked and wounded and scarred so that we can become more Christ-like. He's more concerned about our inner life than our outer life. We tend to focus on our outer life, but he wants our inner life to become like him. Just this morning I was reading Streams in the Desert, a devotional And there's a poem in there. I want to read just part of it. It reflects the heart of understanding of this. She says, I will not doubt, though all my prayers return unanswered, 
from the still white realm above. I will believe it is an all-wise love which has refused these things for which I yearn. And though at times I cannot keep from grieving, yet the pure ardor of my fixed believing undimmed shall burn. I will not doubt though sorrows fall like rain and troubles swarm like bees about a hive. I will believe the heights for which I strive are only reached by anguish and by pain. And though I groan and writhe beneath my crosses, I yet shall see through my severest losses the greater gain. That's the kind of Messiah we've come to. One who always does what is right, not what we want. So Zechariah says this king is righteous. We can trust in his wisdom and in his goodness. Now it gets very interesting. The other two qualities that Zechariah lists of this coming king. He says your king's coming to you. He's just, and my translation, endowed with salvation. Some translations say having salvation. See, the translators have had a really hard time with this. Because, go back to your 8th grade grammar or whatever, this is a passive verb here. In other words, he's saying he's the object of salvation. He receives salvation. He doesn't give it. Now, we know he ultimately saves, but the kind of Savior we have, the kind of Messiah we have, is one who literally must be saved himself. Isn't that interesting? That's why they don't know how to translate it because how can the king, the Messiah, the coming Messiah be so helpless and needy that he needs to be saved? That's mind-blowing. This king will be so needy he needs to be rescued. This challenges us. Wait a minute. That's the kind of Messiah we have? He's so weak in such a desperate situation that he needs to be saved. It doesn't sound like the strong kind of king I want to follow. Imagine having a boss who is such a wreck, he can't handle anything. He's placed above you, but he's addicted. He has to go to rehab, and you're expected to follow him? I don't think so. That's not somebody you want to follow, and yet... Jesus presents himself as one who is so helpless and needy, he needs to be saved. But yet, think about how Jesus came. When he first came, what did he come as? A helpless baby. You can hear one crying. (laughs) Who cried like that? Who wet himself? Who could do nothing for himself, but had to be completely taken care of. And how did he leave his time on earth? Nailed to a cross, completely helpless and needy, broken, rejected by everyone, including his heavenly Father. That's how he chose to come and to leave, as one who needed help, who needed to be saved. What is Zechariah getting at here? I think he's getting at the fact that Jesus came to be a broken, weak, 
leader. It speaks of Jesus giving up his life for us, taking on sin for us. In fact, the way it's said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 21, Paul puts it this way, He who knew no sin became sin for us. You and I are sinful. We need to be saved. (laughs) We need to be rescued. But he became, in this great mystery of God himself, he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He descended into hell and had to be rescued and resurrected by his heavenly Father. What a mystery. What a Savior. (laughs) And then the final word that's used by Zechariah to describe this Messiah who's coming, this King, is it says he is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This word for humble sometimes translated gentle. But again, it's hard to translate. The Hebrew word is a word that means really oppressed. Listen to these passages, two passages. The only other places Zechariah uses this word. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor is my translation, but that's the same word. You see, Jesus came as one who was oppressed, who was poor, who was disenfranchised, like the widows and the orphans who were experiencing incredible injustice in Israel in those days. And those who were financially destitute had no power, disenfranchised, had nothing they could do to help themselves. That's the Messiah who came. The other passage where this is used, this word is over in chapter 11, verse 7. So I pastured the flock doomed to slaughter. Hence, the afflicted of the flock. The word afflicted there, same word. Poor, afflicted. There you see destined for slaughter. This word describes those who are completely destitute, can do nothing for themselves, completely oppressed. And this is our Messiah. This is our King. You see why the Jews of Jesus' day didn't like this. This wasn't what they wanted. (laughs) But this is who he was. And this is why they missed who he was. And it says a picture of that, that oppressed, that needy, is he came riding on a donkey, a colt of a donkey, actually. Now, we have this nice little picture of, you know, Jesus riding this donkey into town and, Everybody cheering, and it's wonderful. But I don't know if you've been around donkeys much. They're not like war horse, okay, if you've seen the movie. Charging in the battle with power and strength and fat. No. Have any of you been to donkey basketball? <laughs> if you have, you know what it's like. I mean, they just wander all over the place. You have to get off and try to pull them if you want them to go anywhere, pull on the rope and... 
And those are trained donkeys. We're told very clearly that Jesus rode the colt of a donkey who had never been ridden before. Now, I don't know you, but I'm picturing Jesus on this little colt and his feet are about touching the ground. And the disciples are having to pull on this thing to try to get him to move in the right direction. And he, it was completely undignified. It was not king-like at all. <laughs> Why did Jesus choose to come that way? Well, partially to fulfill this passage and partly to show the people who were cheering, Hosanna, which means, oh, save us. <laughs> get rid of the Romans. But to show them that he came as a humble king, He came to be not only a human like one of us, which is a miracle, the creator of the universe coming to be one of us. Incredible. But he came to be one of the lowest of us. In fact, the very lowest. To become the poor, the weak, the needy, the helpless. And he died as a reject. You know, in our culture, when he died on that cross, only the very scum of the earth we're killed in that way, we're executed in that way. The only thing I can think of that would equate as child abusers today, he was seen in that light. A complete reject from society. What does this mean? <laughs> That's our king? It means that Jesus identifies with the very lowly in society. As he says in Matthew 25, the least of these, as much as you've done it to the least of these, the most rejected in society, you have done it to me. Because that's how I came. I'm one of them. In every homeless person, in the convicts and rejected of society, you can see the face of Christ. And you, this morning, sitting here in church, are you needy? Are you feeling oppressed? Are you weak? Are you needing to be saved? Well, so is Jesus. And he came for you and he came to identify with you completely, with you and me, in our neediness, in our brokenness, in our needing to be saved. So who is this, Jesus? Who is this? He's a righteous king who always does what's right in full authority, but he's came oppressed and needing to be saved because he took on our sin for us. And what does he accomplish by being that kind of Messiah? Four things I want to highlight in the rest of this chapter. What does he accomplish that may be different than what we expect or demand, but it's exactly who he came to be? Verse 10, first of all, he brings us peace. I will cut off the chariot, verse 10, from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. What does he offer? He offers shalom. That's the Hebrew word for peace. It's wholeness, it's completeness. And notice he doesn't enforce peace, at least on his first coming. It says he speaks peace to the nations. He speaks it to all peoples. He calls all people to come and receive forgiveness in him, to follow this kind of humble king, 
this kind of humble Savior because we can all identify with Him. We're all like Him. And therefore, He says, come and have peace. And this peace He speaks of is not just, you know, in our psychological age, we think of peace as this inner feeling of well-being. And it's not really what He's talking about. The kind of shalom He's talking about is a, a deeper joy, a deeper confidence that I'm right with God and I'm becoming who God created me to be, a wholeness, a completeness in my life. That's the peace he offers to every one of us where we're finally right. We are right, right with God and right with ourselves and learning to be right with others. Secondly, what does he accomplish through this? Forgiveness. Verse 11 and 12. was for you also because of the blood of my covenant with you. I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have the hope. This very day I am declaring that I will restore double to you. By being a humble, needy king, he says, I'm extending the blood of the covenant. Zechariah here is thinking of back in Exodus. There's only... Three places in Scripture that this phrase occurs. One in Exodus where it's talking about the sacrifices. If you want to be right with God, then you need to do sacrifices. And then here is a prophecy about Jesus. And then Jesus picks this up, this very prophecy. In the Last Supper, remember what he said at the Last Supper as he gathered with his disciples and was about to die. He took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. And then... After supper, he took the cup also, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, the covenant of blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You see, Jesus was saying what Zechariah talked about, where there's freedom, restoration, forgiveness, like the old sacrifices could never give you, it happens because I come as a humble king who gives up my life for you. And he accomplishes our forgiveness, our forgiveness from sin through his blood. And he says, therefore, Zechariah, that brings freedom and hope and restoration, guilt and shame are dealt with in him. We are forgiven. We are free. So he brings peace and forgiveness. And third, he gives purpose. Verse 13, For I will bend Judah as my bow. I will fill the bow with Ephraim, and I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and I will make you like a warrior's sword. He says the people of God, in the Old Testament Israel, but now us, along with all who believe, are like weapons in his hand. We are his bow. We are his arrows. We are his sword. We now have purpose. We are weapons in his battle for souls. That's who we are. <laughs> we are his weapons, his bow, his arrows, his sword to expand his kingdom. We get to be part of what he's doing in the world. We get to stand out and have true purpose in our lives. The world around us, what's their purpose? To survive? To try to find a little bit of happiness in this broken world? But it's a challenge for you and for me not to live like the world around us, but to realize 
I get to be part of expanding God's kingdom. Lord, make me your bow. Make me your arrow. Shoot me forth. Let me be your sword, slicing away the blindness and the darkness of this world, the cloud that's blinded people so that people might be set free and your kingdom might expand in our world. And then finally, what does he bring? Being this kind of Messiah? Goodness and beauty. Goodness and beauty. Notice verse 16 and 17. And the Lord their God will save them in that day. He will save us ultimately in the end. He does save us by needing to be saved (laughs) as the flock of his people. For they are as the stones of a crown sparkling in his land. For what comeliness and beauty will be theirs. That word for comeliness is really the word goodness. Goodness. He says what goodness and beauty will be theirs. What a wonderful pair of words. The word for beauty is used for a beautiful woman. God, by being, by sending Jesus to be the kind of king he is, begins to change us and create in us, sinful people, goodness, Christ-likeness, and beauty, like the beauty of a sparkling diamond of, of a beautiful woman. And yes, that's us men too. <laughs> He's creating an incredible beauty in us that reflects him as, and his beauty as he recreates himself in us. Isn't that amazing? Wow. So we become like the moon, which in itself it doesn't have light, but it reflects the light of the sun. And we become like a sparkling jewel that reflects his light in this land, in this world around us. So who is this? Who is this king? Who is this Messiah who comes into Jerusalem? He doesn't come to take over. He comes to die. He is one who is needy, oppressed, and needing salvation just like every one of us. So he identifies with every one of us in our brokenness, in our struggles. He brings shalom, forgiveness, a purpose for living, and goodness and beauty that reflect him. Does he destroy all our struggle and our enemies? No, not yet. (laughs) At his second coming, yes, the king will do that. But for now, he leaves us in the battle so that we can be part of expanding his kingdom to be used of him so that the kingdom might expand into the hearts of men and women all around us as we learn to follow our humble king. Let's pray. Wow, Lord, what an amazing picture of how you came, Jesus, to be king. Not to dominate and control. Not yet. Someday. But you came as a humble king needy, dependent on your Father with all authority, always doing what's right. And Lord, help us know you as you really are, as you came to be, and help us learn to be people who follow you, who submit to you, who surrender and live as you did on earth, 
saying, not my will, but yours be done. For it's in your name we can even come into your presence because of what you have done to bring us peace, forgiveness, purpose, and beauty. And for all that, we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.